I don't believe there is work-life balance. What I've learned to master over time is the work-life blend, right? I've learned how to fit work around my life so I can, I can still live. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Yo, yo, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. And I'm here with my co-host, Justin. What's up, man? Man, just got done uh, ripping it up in Vail. Not too pumped to be back in Boston after being gone for three weeks, but you know, the real world's calling. How about you, Cody? Yeah, nothing too much going on here. I'm in my second week of joblessness, <laughs> going rogue entrepreneur, and I've been working. I mean, I've been grinding, man, just trying to get all my side hustle stuff done, trying to earn an income while I don't have that steady paycheck rolling in. But Justin, I'm curious before we hop in, what was your favorite part of that three-week trip? Definitely Kauai. I mean, any place where they filmed Jurassic Park, you know, has got to be fantastic. Uh, it's just gorgeous out there. If you've never been, you got to go. Awesome. All right. So let's talk about the real star of this episode. And this is Dom from Gen Y Finance Guy. And I mean, what I love about this guy is he kind of takes a different approach than a lot of other money bloggers do. He's not into frugality. He openly states that him and his wife spend between 110 and 120K a year. But that's okay because they're raking in about 450K. So he still has an awesome savings rate, but he is not all about frugality. He thinks that everyone should be focusing on maximizing their income. Yeah, and I think what makes it even more interesting is that he's not obsessed with, you know, he's not obsessed with being frugal, but he started out on the very low end of the income scale. But he's always been an entrepreneur from selling candy bars. But now he's at this, you know, completely other end of the spectrum, having this $10 million goal. But I don't want to give away the whole episode. So why don't we turn it over to him? I think it was probably when I was in college, I picked up uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And that was probably my first introduction to this idea of financial independence or financial freedom. And, you know, that kind of that lit a fire, <laughs> no pun intended, <laughs> you know, that that's developed into something much bigger today. And I mean, I think there's a lot more media and eyeballs on, on this whole financial independence and, you know, financial freedom movement. As far as my beginning money story, I grew up on welfare. You know, my uh, my parents were drug addicts. My my dad spent uh, a better part of a decade in and out of prison for the manufacturing of methamphetamine. And somehow, through all of that, although statistically I should be in prison, I found a path to success that is probably a low probability event for for someone with my background. How did I get here? I lived vicariously through successful people that I observed outside of my own circle of influence. Somehow I realized early on that I could reach a level of success if I associated with people that were far and above and beyond where I wanted to be. And somehow intuitively, although I was young at the time and, and you know you can really only connect the dots looking backwards, I chose to be the victor and not the victim. And that has led to an incredible level of success I've developed an incredible level of ambition and, and, and drive, and I'm very motivated by people that are far more successful than I am, and that's really what's driven me to where I am today. So that's not always the most intuitive route for people. People don't always just figure out, if I latch on to these people who are hyper-successful, then I will be hyper-successful. And I've seen your story just on your blog and listening to you talk before and other podcasts, and like you were selling candy out of a shoebox in high school. 
doing stuff like that. So, I mean, that's entrepreneurial, but that's not exactly looking up to a mentor. So when was that first like mentor symbiosis where you're like, wow, if I kind of stick with these types of people, I can be wildly successful. Okay. (laughs) Actually, I I have a vivid moment in time or or inflection point when that actually happened. It probably goes to the, to my earliest side hustle, if you will. And I was in sixth grade and I had some friends that had told me about this pizza place where if you went there and you folded some pizza boxes, you get free pizza and, uh, and soda. And as a sixth grader, you can imagine, I mean, that was, that was, (laughs) that was worth more than money. Oh yeah, at the time. definitely. Huh. And also for my upbringing, right? Like it, it wasn't common that we were getting pizza from from a pizza joint. I mean, the the closest thing was probably a you know a frozen equivalent to whatever DiGiorno was back then when I was younger, because I know DiGiorno I don't think existed. But so I started hanging around that pizza place, and I, I got to meet the uh, the owner. His name's Dan. I'll, I'll keep his last name out just out of uh, anonymity. But he he became my first mentor. Whether it was official or not in the beginning is up for debate, but he took an altruistic interest in me and I just looked up to him because, you know, to me, he was the richest person in the world and most successful person I ever met because he owned a pizza place. (laughs) Um, And that was, I think that was that moment that you're asking for. Yeah. I mean, pizza is probably the unit of currency where you'd see the most value when you're in sixth grade, right? Exactly. As awesome as free pizza is and learn how to fold pizza boxes, you know, it's great, but... That doesn't really sound like something that translates into a a six-figure job or starting your own business. So what was it from the pizza place that really pushed you to the next level? I learned a lot hanging around that pizza place, right? I observed Dan as he, you know, worked through inventory and as he created a schedule of, you know, all the employees that he had to help run the pizza place. You know, I think I, I think that was the first place I learned the concept of leverage. I did, again, I didn't know it at the time. But, you know, there's different types of leverage, right? You can you can leverage other people's money or you can leverage other people's efforts. And that was the first time I, I actually witnessed someone leveraging other people's efforts, right? Where he had a staff of, you know, 30 or 40 people and he used them to help run his business. So I think, you know, that's one of the things I kind of developed early on. And it was really through observation, these things that I didn't really realize I was learning at the time. But again, it's 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 something that you can only connect the dots looking backwards. I also learned, you know, just by folding pizza boxes and getting pizza, that there was a direct correlation between the effort that you put out in the world and and the reward you got in return. And yeah, in the early days, it was pizza, but that eventually translated into, into, you know, some kind of monetary reward for your efforts. And then I think the last thing that I kind of realized is that, you know, you could sell something in return for some monetary amount, but you had to find the right price that people were willing to pay. So you mentioned in the beginning of this call, when I was in high school, you know, I needed to make some extra money. And so I thought, what is valuable to a high school student? Candy. It was the first <laughs> thing that popped into mind. So what I did uh, one morning before school, I went to the local Albertsons and they they had a deal, you know, three for a dollar candy bars. And I, I bought, I think I bought like 18, maybe 20 with various, you know, maybe M&M's, uh, Hershey's bar and, and something else. And I went to school and I was like, okay, I'm going to see if I can sell these. And I offered, you know, one for a dollar or three for two fifty. And I sold out that first day and I was like, hmm, I think I'm onto something. And so <laughs> the, the next day I, I bought two, you know, two times the amount that I brought the first day. And I, again, I sold out. I was like, okay, I'm onto something after, you know, I, I continued doing it for a week and I realized I need to step up my game, get a better or a lower cost basis. So then I recruited my grandfather to take me to Costco and started buying candy in bulk. At that time I expanded from 
you know, three different types of candy, candy bars to, I think I had like nine or so and from different brands, they weren't all Hershey. And I converted one of my dressers into my inventory storage locker, if you will. Back in those days, I was, you know, making, you know, 60 to hundred bucks a day selling candy out of a shoebox. That's amazing. And so this is a perfect segue actually, because that's a decent income, honestly, like a hundred bucks a day, three grand a month for a high school student. Like, I mean, you could probably live on that if you were to maintain that same lifestyle, but Something you really talk about a lot on your blog is that you've already lived the college life, you're done with that, and that you can, I guess you can hit like fat fire and live this more lavish life by earning an outsized income. So when was that transition? Like when did you realize this isn't enough money? I kind of want to take this to the next level and really test the limits of my income. Again, I go back to where I came from and I think, you know, money money's always been motivating because I saw everyone around me growing up having things that I couldn't have. Like they they were just they were off the table because the resources weren't there. I mean, obviously I started to create some of those own resources myself when I started these little side hustles, especially when I got into high school, you know, making my own money to buy things that friends and peers were getting, you know, handed to them from their from their parents. And so, but when did I make that transition from, you know, kind of the sky's the limit on on the income side of the equation and and really expanding my own lifestyle? I think I think that inflection point really didn't happen until I got out of college. I'd probably point back to sometime in in the range of 2012 to 2014, which, you know, corresponds to around when I started the blog. Back in the early days, it was, although I was focused on growing my income, at the same time, I was also trying to practice, you know, this extreme frugality that just didn't work. It was a conflict to my own personal leaning and, and kind of desires that I wanted in life. Like I, I wanted to have the finer things in life, but I also wanted to save a lot of money to work towards financial freedom. And so, I mean, if I had to choose one point in time, I think it was probably sometime around when I created the blog in, in 2014, where I realized that extreme frugality wasn't really my thing. It was more about relative frugality, where if I focused on the income side of the equation. You know, I created a, a, a rule that my wife and I live by, and that's the rule of 50-50 to, to save 50% of everything we make after tax and spend the other 50% guilt-free. And that was a free pass for us to enjoy lifestyle inflation. I know that's a big no-no in, in most of the FIRE community, but to me, I wanted flexibility and optionality. And that's that's really what money gives you is it's, it's optionality. It's not the money itself. It's the options it gives you to to live your life in, in in the most meaningful and fulfilling way. And so that's kind of, you know, how I got to where I am today and it's it's been super successful because once I removed that barrier that was, you know, kind of maybe artificially created by being in this state of scarcity because I was trying to pinch pennies and save as much as I could but not focusing as, as much effort as I could on the income side of the equation, moving to, you know, where I am today is kind of put me in that frame of or you know, mindset of abundance because Theoretically, there's no there's no ceiling to how much you can earn, but there is a floor in how much you know you can cut your expenses. And my wife and I, we've kind of found a an equilibrium where, although we've allowed for lifestyle inflation, you know, the last three years we've kind of spent somewhere in the hundred and ten to hundred and twenty thousand dollar range, and we we have started to you know our earnings have outpaced our desire to spend more. So now our savings rate has been increasing from fifty percent. So I think this year we're we're on track for, you know, for 57 to 60%. And how did you come to realize or, you know, what jumped out at you when you saw that extreme frugality just wouldn't work? Like, did it exhaust you? Did it put stress on your relationship? Or was it just something that went against your philosophy? I think I realized 
that I didn't want to, or I couldn't live in the extreme frugality framework because it just wasn't aligned with my goals and desires for how I envision living my life. I didn't want to be constrained by, you know, the amount of money I brought in every month to do the things I wanted to do. Of course, yeah, early on when I was in high school and college, I mean, I lived that frugality life without really trying just because I wasn't making that much money and I was busy going to school and working that I didn't have a lot of time to, to really, you know, spend money. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but maybe that elicits further questions to dive in a little deeper from what I answered. Yeah, I was just wanting to dig into that transition point where you realized, you know, you wanted to start opening up and spending a little bit more. I know as, you know, someone who grew up with a lot of money that it can be tough to release that scarcity mindset. So I just wanted to unwrap, you know, how you made that transition and to just let go of that scarcity mindset. Yeah, when I, and I think, you know, when you come from poverty, there's this natural tendency to want to hoard, right? Because you're not used to having as much as you have. And, and, and it kind of creates, you know, it kind of goes back to this imposter syndrome, which is alive and well in many aspects of our lives that, you know, maybe, maybe I don't deserve this one day. It could be taken all away from me. So I want to protect it as much as I can, but that was in a direct conflict with how I really wanted to live my life. So although that was, you know, a function of where I came from, somehow I was able to get above where I came from to see a future that was, was bigger than anything I had actually directly experienced, you know, things I'd only observed from the outside looking in. And that transition, was it easy? Was it hard? It's hard to say. It just happened. I, I somehow something clicked. I had an epiphany It said, hey, look, you can get rid of, you know, the the frustration of of trying to live this super frugal life, but also wanting to have the finer things in life. If you just transition your focus to earning as much income as possible. And that really made it super easy. Once I realized that if I could, if I could out earn my desire to spend, I could spend on whatever I wanted to, I can still practice frugality. It was just relative to my income. Yeah, that's definitely a great point. Because like you just highlighted, even if you are spending $110,000 a year, and your savings rates 57% or upwards of almost 60%. So it's not like you're spending every penny that comes in. Those are two totally, totally different things. And that's something that we love preaching on this podcast because there is not one way to financial independence. I think the income side honestly doesn't get as much love as it should. And you are a perfect example of how you can kind of hack this income game. So hopping back to like when you graduated college, I know you took a lot of strategic steps, whether it was like switching companies or asking for raises at your same companies. I'd love if you could kind of just go over on a granular level some of those steps that you took to really have a huge impact on boosting your income. Yeah, so I think... Early on, when I think back to my first job out of college, I actually interned at the company that I ended up accepting an offer on out of college for about a year and a half before I joined them as a full-time financial analyst. And I think, you know, the first thing I did is I hustled, right? I outworked my peers. I'm a big believer that you can out-hustle even the most innately gifted. And I also believe that most people are lazy. So the top is never cr as crowded as you think it is. It's just most people give up way too early. They want that instant gratification. And what they forget is that every overnight success is about 10 to 20 years in the making. So, you know, for my first seven, seven years, you know, out of school, I was working 80 to 90 hours a week. And sometimes that was directly for the employer that I was working for. And sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes it was it was honing and crafting a skill set that was both rare and valuable. And that allowed me to, you know, eventually cash in on kind of the on the income side of the equation to where I am today. 
So, I mean, I'd say number one is, is hustle, right? You outwork your peers when they were going out to happy hour or they were going to Vegas for the weekend. I was working and, and, and uh, focusing on personal and professional development. I think, you know, the second piece that I threw in there that I'll just kind of carve out as, as a takeaway or another thing to focus is, is you really do have to acquire a rare and valuable skill set. And what I mean by that, it's, it's something that you can be the top 5% at, whether it's within your organization or, you know, even within the world. If you can't be the top 5%, you probably haven't found, you know, that one thing that only you can do. And it's not good enough to just acquire that skill set. You also have to be good at marketing that. You have to make sure that people know that you're good at what you're good at, right? And, and that they see the value. One of the biggest things that's helped me along the way is being able to translate what I do well into, into terms of, you know, increased profitability for whatever organization I'm, I'm working in. You know, working in finance, that's a lot easier to do than maybe some other positions. But I encourage everyone to try to translate what they do for the company in terms of value to that company. It makes it a lot easier to ask to be paid for more money when you're when you're delivering you know, $600,000 of value a year, it's, it's really easy to go ask for a $60,000 raise, you know, because that's, that's a fraction of what value you're delivering for an organization. And kind of piggybacking on, you know, that rare and valuable skill set, it required me and it, it requires anyone to have a keen sense of self-awareness, you know, because you have to know what you are good at and what you're not good at. And, and really play to your strengths. Some people say, you know, you got to work on your weaknesses. But I'm a big believer that when you're in the early part of your journey, it's, it's much more important that you play to your strengths than you strengthening your weaknesses. At the same time, there are other things that played, played a role is being resourceful. I always tell people that, you know, success or, or failure is not because you lack the resources. It's because you lack resourcefulness. We live in a day and age where any information we want is at our fingertips. You know, whether you do a Google search, you find a blog or, or you go buy a 10 or $20 book on Amazon, learn to be resourceful and it'll, it'll take you a long way. Other things that, you know, that maybe I specifically did early on is, you know, I was a big believer and I still am of a philosophy of fake it until you make it. You know, I was early on sitting in meetings with, with executives and I may not have always known what they were talking about, but I, I wrote it down and I played a good game and I'd make promises. I didn't know exactly how it was going to deliver, but I knew it was possible. And all I had to do is kind of be resourceful to go find out what they were talking about and, and figure out how to deliver what I promised. I'm not telling you to write checks you can't cash, but there is a level of, of fake it till you make it that you can use that will help expedite your, your career. The last few that I can think of, uh, and hopefully I'm not rambling on too much, but is to, to make sure you're, you're in it for the long game. I, I said at the beginning of this kind of long-winded answer that most people forget that every overnight success is really 10 to 20 years in the making. You know, there's, there's a lot of friends and peers of mine that, you know, they, they ask me today, like, can you believe you are where you are today? And, you know, there, there's a modesty answer where you want to say, no, nah, it's crazy, right? But at the core, you also realize, yes, <laughs> I can believe where I am today because I've been putting in the work for the last 10 years. And, you know, because exponential growth is very hard for us to innately visualize as humans because we have a tendency to think very linearly, that person that's on the exponential curve of success and that and someone else that's on a linear curve, it's hard to distinguish their paths until you get to that, you know, the elbow of the curve when all of a sudden the trend for an exponential, you know, success traveler turns up and goes hyperbolic, right? I mean, I went from senior financial analyst to C-suite executive in what seemed like a three-year period, but it was really 10 years in the making. And then the last piece, and I'll, I'll wrap this up with a bow, is 
luck, right? There's a bit of luck that I think plays a role in everyone's success. It's not the kind of lucky I'm talking about, you know, winning the lottery. It's being prepared for opportunity when it knocks. And so, you know, if you're constantly growing as a person, you know, both personally and professionally, when when opportunities present themselves, you're going to you're going to be able to recognize them and capitalize on them. But sometimes being in the right place at the right time with the right skill set makes all the difference. Yeah, I love that string of tangible ideas and the philosophies to follow. But you got me curious when you started talking about, you know, honing in on this rare skill and being the top 5% in it. So what were these skills you were mentioning? I think it's being able to turn information into consumable and actionable data. And, you know, being in finance, you know, there's there's a lot of time I spend, you know, analyzing and figuring out how can, you know, what levers do we have to pull to improve our top line and bottom line results as an organization. And it goes back to what I said in my last answer to, to the last question and being able to then also quantify what the impact is of a, an action that, you know, a management team will take based on the data that I'm presenting. I think that's the thing that I'm best at. And it's the highest and best use of my time. And I think you got to pair that a little bit, though, with being able to communicate with with management. So the, I think the skill on that, I guess that piggybacks on this is I look at myself as the Rosetta Stone between finance, kind of IT and, and operations, where I can I can kind of talk their language to get them to see what I'm trying to present to them as an opportunity to optimize the business in some shape or form. Yeah, I mean, that makes total sense. For those people who genuinely want to find out, you know, the skill they should focus on or one that they might be in the top 5% in, but they're having trouble finding it, what tips do you have for them? And is it more introspective or looking out for new skills and maybe some combo of the two? I'd say the first place to start is ask people that you work with, you know, like, or what are people think about what people are constantly complimenting them on, right? Like, what do they do that seems like magic to someone else? And I think that's a good place to start. And if you're just coming out of you know college, maybe you're not to a point where you can ask those types of questions or you're not getting that feedback yet. And then my advice in that point is just to try a lot of things and see what kind of sticks and then get feedback from others and, and see, is this the thing that I can be the top 5% at? And so on the income lifting, income generation side of things, so for someone to actually directly get like a raise or get paid more by a new job, what are your tips on that? Because I know you've kind of hopped around quite a bit during your career. Yeah, I mean, so let's back up for a second and we'll we'll preface this answer with a philosophy. And that is those that ask for more money tend to make more money. So the first piece of advice is don't settle for what you're given. Because if you let someone else plan your future, you know what they have planned? Not much. And that's a riff from Jim Jim Rohn. I probably uh, you know didn't get his quote exactly right, but... I'm a true believer in that. Yet you have to ask for what you're worth and what you deserve. And most people don't like to be in that uncomfortable situation to ask what they're worth. They, they'd rather wait for someone to tell them, hey, we're going to give you a raise. And, and most of the time, that probably means it's going to be like a 3% you know, cost of living adjustment. Now, going back, so how else do you get yourself in a position to get more money. Sometimes, you know, you do have to, you know, you do have to hop around. Like you mentioned that I've made a few strategic hops. And it really comes down to a point where if you've asked for more money and, and, and you've, you've truly delivered on the value, so you really are worth the additional income that you're asking for and your company denies you, well, if you keep hitting your head against a wall and you're not getting a different result, you know, it might be time to jump ship and, and find another company that will 
will pay you what you're worth. And unfortunately, sometimes that's what it takes. You know, I've been in a couple different organizations where I had gone above and beyond and, and showed the value that I was delivering. And it was, you know, far less than I was being paid. And I wasn't asking to, you know, capture all that value. I just wanted a percentage of it. And they said no. And then, you know, I, I waited and said, okay, what, what else would it take? And when they still said no, I decided to start looking for other opportunities. And the sad part is, is a lot of times companies will come to the table when it's too late. So, you know, I've had two specific examples where I'd asked for more and, and I even said, hey, look, OK, if, if you can't give me what I'm worth, I'm going to look outside. And, you know, when I had a job offer on the table, that was exactly what I asked for or more. Then they try to come to the table and, and then match it. By that time, it's it's too late. To me, once you decide to leave an organization, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, because you're just going to be put up against the same resistance every time you try to go for, you know, what you're worth. I think that's number two. You know, that's, that's one way you can or another way you can get more money. The other piece that I think is even more important, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't use jumping around as the as the number one strategy. It, it just it is required at some points in your career to continue advancing. But to me, the most important method is to really sit down with with your manager and figure out what does success look like in my role. Right. And if I want to get to, you know, X, let's just call it six figures. What do I need to do and and lay out those expectations with your manager, put it in writing and say, OK, you know, and, and go over it with your manager. Say, like, if I get to here and I do this, this and this and deliver X value, you're saying I can get, you know, this promoted this position and make this kind of comp and you get them to sign off on those things. And then you, you send them a copy via email and you track your progress throughout the year. And when it comes, you know, evaluation time. You bring that back out and, you know, let's assume that you've met all the goals and expectations and it gives them no argument. Like they, you said, hey, look, we sat down. If I did this, this and this, this would get me to this result. And that's been very successful for me in my own career. That is a pretty amazing strategy. And it's also very gutsy, or at least it could seem very intimidating to someone. So, you know, I don't want to move past the advice without really digging in, though, because is this an exercise you literally sit down with your boss typing out an agreement, you know, to get you to this next position, hit print, have them sign, scan, email it to them, and then come into review time with evidence that, you know, that you met it and asking, hey, when is this raise happening? I mean, I, you know, I love that, but I've never heard of it. And secondly, when you're swapping jobs, do you have like a, you know, a time frame, like X number of months prior to leaving that you start scouring LinkedIn? Are these contacts from your current business? You know, how does finding that next job really look? So let me let me give you an example of an opportunity that you know led to 2015. I got a $60,000 raise, okay? And how did it happen? Well, I came in and I was brought in to to implement a piece of software. The the company that I worked for didn't see its full potential. They saw it just doing, you know, one part of our processes. I presented to them a much bigger picture of, of what this software could do. And I, and I also said, look, here's the kind of value I think it could deliver. You know, essentially, it was going to once fully implemented was going to free up $60,000 worth of resources. Right. And that was that was into perpetuity. And I said, look, if I can do this, and I wasn't even asking for a $60,000 raise, by the way, but if I can do this, I want to get promoted and I want to, you know, increase my income to, you know, a, a fraction of the value that I add. And so they agreed. And I'm putting this in very simplistic terms. And hopefully this is a good example for the listeners. 
So I implemented the software and over the course of, of a year, everything was was going as planned. I then, you know, calculated the the savings because there was, you know, eight different people that were touching, you know, this reporting process that I had now automated, you know, and it, instead of taking four to six weeks for the different business leaders to get the financial information they needed to run their business, it now happened on the ninth business day of the month when the when the books were closed with, you know, with very minimal touch points, right? Instead of, you know, eight to 10 different people touching this process, there's now one person, me, and mostly technology doing the heavy lifting. And when we quantified the the savings, it ended up being about 60000 It was about $58,500 a year in resources that were freed up. That was real time that each of these people that were touching this process no longer had to do. And that freed them up to work on other things that the organization needed. And and how did I quantify that amount? I took you know these people's labor rates times the hours they used to spend because early on before we did the implementation, we did a study because I wanted to understand how much time it was taking and how much that was really costing the company and resources. And that's how I quantified what the savings was. And and then I didn't even have to ask. It was just my raise and promotion. You know, I got promoted to from senior financial analyst to director, and I got a sixty thousand dollar increase because. It wasn't because it was the sixty thousand that I added. It was the perception that you've added sixty thousand, and we know that you're going to add even more than that because there was other things I had started to work on. So they gave that to me ahead of the value that I was freeing up for the organization. Okay, and just to piggyback on that second part of the question is so like hopping companies. So are they reaching out to you? And for people who don't know what a headhunter was, I know I used that term earlier. It's like someone who recruits top talent from other companies and brings them to different companies. So yeah, I just love to hear how you navigated that. Like, were you forming relationships or were they coming to you? Yeah. So early on, I was probably three years into my first job out of college and I you know, met with a recruiter and actually I probably, I probably had two recruiters that I was, or maybe even three that I was speaking to regularly, but one, one that I've stayed in touch with over the years, even to this day. And I wasn't even necessarily looking for a job. I just wanted to stay, you know, plugged into what opportunities were out there. And, and every once in a while, every couple of years, and I recommend most people do this, just go out there and see, okay, what are you doing? What are you currently doing at your current company? And what are similar roles paying at different companies to make sure that you're getting market value? And so, yeah, so I mean, I definitely stayed plugged in with what you're calling headhunters. I call them recruiters. They're the same thing over the years. And it did result in some of the, you know, I used a recruiter when I did make uh, changes from one company to the next. Was I networking on LinkedIn? No, not really. You know, LinkedIn wasn't as big when I first started my career. I mean, it's it's bigger now. The way I got the job I'm in now, actually, it was it was a recruiter reaching out to me on LinkedIn. What's funny is I actually thought the company that I'm at now, I thought it was going to be kind of a gap resume filler. I didn't plan on staying here probably much longer than a year, but now I've been here almost five years and it's been an opportunity of a lifetime. So, you know, being open minded to to entertain opportunities is also a huge plus. I'd like for you to give us a little insight into what you just said about your job being this great opportunity, but I know you consider yourself an entrepreneur and this job is still working for someone else. You know, it's not purely your creation. Do you have any internal debates or, you know, mental battles over working for someone else? And how does that, you know, coincide with your desire to be an entrepreneur? I think there's really a, a distinguishment to make. And that is when you work for a company, you can either be an employee or you can be an entrepreneur, which is really, to me, a subset of if you have that entrepreneurial tendency. And so although I consider myself to be entrepreneurial, I'm currently wearing two hats where I'm an entrepreneur within an organization that is not my own. 
And I'm also an entrepreneur outside of it because, you know, I do have, you know, little side hustles, but the income that's derived from those side hustles are not nearly as much as what I can derive from, from the company I work for. But that being said, I have a lot of the same autonomy that I would have working for myself full time, you know, in, in an entrepreneurial type business. I also have the upside because, you know, what I found is that the people that get rich working for someone else, they're not employees, they're entrepreneurs, they're people that deliver enough value where they can get a stake in the outcome. And how do you do that? That means you deliver enough value and you negotiate a package and whereby your compensation is based on the success of that organization. So at my level now, I, you know, a piece of my income is, you know, based on the profitability of our business, you know, in the form of, of a bonus. But I also have negotiated equity and options. So you can have your cake and eat it too. You can be entrepreneurial and still work for an organization. And it doesn't have to feel like you're, you know, working for the quote unquote, the man, as you, as you put it. Um, <laughs> you can, you can have that autonomy and it's a lot less risky too, right? If you think back, you know, 95% of businesses fail, I think within their first year. And I think, Something like 99% of businesses fail within five years. Check the statistics because most statistics, you know, 85% of the time are made up on the spot. But uh, <laughs> you get my point. <laughs> yeah. So I was just curious because that's something you hear a lot in the FI community. Like, honestly, I butt heads with myself a lot because I'm still working in this corporate job. At the same time, I have all these entrepreneurial things that are going on that I'm super passionate about. But it's like, do I want to give up this nice corporate paycheck and maybe give up some time and autonomy? Yeah, that's what I'm doing right now. And it's just tough. I think being an entrepreneur and kind of finding that company, finding that role where you can be your own leader and kind of not answer to, quote unquote, the man as much, that seems like the perfect recipe for success. Yeah. And I always tell people, look, it's not always an either or, right? You don't have to be an entrepreneur or or an entrepreneur. You you can be both. And, you know, people are always so quick to want to give up their corporate job and, and that cash flow. But think about it this way. I mean, that cash flow allows you to pursue that entrepreneurial journey early, early on until you realize, until you get to an inflection point that says, okay, look, I think this can be more successful than my day job, right? So me personally, although I'm very entrepreneurial and I want to do my own thing, my income keeps growing far faster than I, than I think I could grow it on my own in entrepreneurial journey. So I continue to stay where I'm at because right now my highest and best use is still in the day job. I mean, I've, I've tripled my income in the last three years. Yeah, you can do that from an entrepreneurial perspective, but the probabilities of that happening are rare. And I believe that I'm the exception and not the rule when it comes to you know starting an entrepreneurial venture. So you've tripled your income in three years, but I think we'd love to hear you know, at what cost. I know you have this huge goal of building a net worth of $10 million, but I also know you often uh, you know, have to work both East and West Coast time zones. So how do you feel your work-life balance is? Yeah. I, I love that you uh, you brought up work life balance. I was actually when you started asking your question, I was like, I hope he I hope he says work life balance because I don't believe there is work life balance. What I've learned to master over time is the work life blend. Right? I've learned how to fit work around my life so I can I can still live and not be you know it goes back to the kind of you know working for the man right? Like I built myself a position that gives me the autonomy I want where I can work from anywhere in the world. Um, yeah, I might still have to work while I'm on vacation, but I have the flexibility to go on vacation even if I don't have the the time to, to take off, right? My wife and I can still go stay at the beach for a week. And yeah, I might have to work part of that time, but I have that flexibility 
to fit work around my life. And a lot of times what I do is, you know, my wife and I do like to go a lot of places is I'm up early at, you know, between four and 5 a.m. every day. And so even if we're on vacation, I can get work done for three to four hours before my wife ever actually is white, you know, wakes up and, you know, wipes the sleep out of her eye. I think one of the other, you know, kind of secrets is I tend to, I tend to work seven days a week. I, I don't really see, you know, distinguish the weekday from the weekend. Now, some people might be drawing conclusions. Well, this guy's very unhealthy. He has no work-life balance, but I'm not always working on work. I'm also working on, you know, other things, whether it's securing our financial plan where, you know, I'm, I'm mapping out investments. I'm mapping out our strategy to, to be mortgage-free here in the next 10 months. I'm continuously working on, you know, again, personal and professional development. So although it may look like I'm working 80 to 90 hours a week still to this day after, you know, 10 years into my career, actual time that I'm spending on my day job, if you will, putting day job in air quotes uh, for those that, you know, can't, well, no one can see me (laughs) since this is a conversation audio only. But uh, I'm really only putting in 40 to 50 hours for the day job. Everything else is just continuing to enhance and improve my skill set, whether it's personally and professionally to continue to help me, you know, achieve that big, hairy, audacious goal of $10 million that you mentioned. Yeah. So I love that work life blend. That is definitely the quotable moment of the episode. (laughs) (laughs) That's just such a cool philosophy that you have, but I'm sure. So work, you described it as it's not just in your business. It might be on, I know you're a fitness fanatic. It's something that you talk about on your blog and you do have a wife that you've mentioned a few times in this episode. So I'm sure you can still carve out times for things like that, even though it might not be like work, quote unquote, they just kind of all blend together is what you're saying, right? That's exactly what I'm saying. You know, we all have 24 hours in the day and I just do my best to fit everything I want to do in those 24 hours. And hey, look, I'll let you know, I may wake up early, but I, I go to bed early too. So I'm getting seven to eight hours of sleep every night. I'm not like this, you know, superhuman freak that only requires, you know, two hours of sleep every night. So I'm working with 16 to 17 hours a day of, of actual time that I can allocate to to work, to my side hustles, to my fitness, to my wife. And, you know, we're expecting our first son here in, in about 30 days. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. So it's like, Every time there's something new that enters my life, I mean, you know, my schedule isn't predictable from day to day. Like I, I just kind of go with the flow and, and sometimes I, I build a routine that then I have to blow up and create something new because what worked before isn't working now. And there's, I'm also a big believer, you know, what got you here won't get you there. So you have to be in continuous state of evolution. That's something that I love just about this podcast, interviewing people like yourself, because people from the outside world will look in and be like, this guy's making like $300,000 a year. I can't relate to him whatsoever. He just got lucky. Like his dad probably gave him the business. He inherited it. But you grind. You're working 16 to 17 hours a day diligently on all these things, whether it be your work, your fitness, whatever. So I think it's just this intentionality and choosing to work hard and work smart has really allowed you to outpace the competition. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to one of my pieces of advice in one of our earlier questions, right? Like you can outwork even the most innately gifted people out there. Now, I don't want your listeners to get confused though. Like, you know, yeah, I have 16 to 17 hours a day to, to quote unquote work, but it's like, it's working on the things that are important to me and, and family and fitness are, are two things that are important to me. Right. So it's not like I just live to work and, you know, all I think about is my day job. There's a lot of things in there and, it, and it's really a holistic approach to, to living life. It's the work-life blend, right? Yeah, work-life <laughs> blend, exactly. Your work ethic and focus is certainly impressive, but I want to hear what your thoughts are on this transition from being dual income, no kids, to you know whatever that is that you're about to be when you do have your first child. Yeah, so 
it's interesting, right? I think one of the one of the competitive advantages that you know my wife and I have had, you know, during the first ten years of our journey together from a financial perspective was that yeah, we were dual income, no kids, and that's about to change here in about thirty days. But you know, you also you've mentioned the word intentional several times on this podcast, and my wife and I are very intentional with our lives and and with planning. And so we waited to have kids, you know, we're, we just turned 32. A lot of our friends had kids, you know, four or five years ago, they started, but we wanted to be in a place where we could reach our goals professionally. We could have a solid financial foundation for when we brought this, you know, child or, or children into the world. And we also wanted to be in a position where if we decided to, we could be a one income family. Like if my wife decided she didn't want to work and she wanted to be at home for the kids, whether it was indefinitely or for the first few years, we wanted to have that optionality. And so we were very intentional with getting to a certain place professionally and financially. So that transition, I'm not really too concerned about. I mean, we're, you know, right now as a household, you know, we, I definitely appreciate the income that my wife brings in, you know, this year we'll probably earn, you know, close to $450,000 as a couple. You could probably say, you know, or some people would probably, you know, classify us as a power couple with that kind of earning um, <laughs> as, as a household. But we could we could definitely live off just my income by myself. You know, I'm earning 300000 a year plus, you know, little side hustles here and there. But the reality is, is my wife, you know, she's she's got ambitions of her own. She's been just as successful in her career and she's being groomed as a, a third generation family, you know, kind of owner operator of the family business. And so, you know, she, she's already made it abundantly clear. She can change her mind because we have that optionality, but she wants to go back to work. So moving or transitioning from dink to the dual income with kids, uh, however you say that, I won't even try. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I don't think it's going to change much from where we are today, but if it does, we're prepared. You know, our mortgage is going to be paid off by July of 2019. And our income, you mentioned my $10 million goal. That was a 20 year plan I put together in 2015. And our income today combined at, you know, about $450,000 is about 11 years ahead of schedule. I didn't have us earning this level of income until the year 2029. And yeah, throw that in the market and just close your eyes and see what happens. And you will probably wake up and have a heart attack (laughs) (laughs) or a really big smile on your face. Or a really big smile. That's probably a better option. (laughs) Okay, Dom. So we talked about your big, hairy, audacious goal, how you're transitioning, being intentional throughout your life. And I know that you are striving for what you consider a level above financial independence, which is financial freedom. And a lot of people use these terms interchangeably, including myself. So I'd love if you could kind of dive into the differences and the nuances of each. Yeah. So one of the rules that you read about, you know, quite often across the personal finance blogosphere is this idea of the 4% rule, right? It's, it's a rule of thumb. It's not, it's not invaluable, but it's a good rule of thumb that, you know, will set you up for a good financially independent life. But I like to distinguish between, you know, financial independence and financial freedom. I think the 4% rule gets you to your FI number and not to your financial freedom number. Don't get me wrong, you know, financial independence will provide you with a nice life, one that you signed up for, but it's a life that you are now locked into for the rest of your days, right? So it's based on the 4% rule basically says, you know, take your annual spending or desired annual spending and multiply it by 25. And so one year of that is worth 4% of that, you know, nest egg, so to speak. That's kind of in a, in a nutshell. But that, that means you know exactly what your life is going to look like for the rest of your days, right? For, you know, whether you have a 20, 30, 40, you know, depending on where you, you know, you might be young fire where people are trying to, you know, quit their job in their thirties or some, some of them even in their twenties. Can you really say with a lot of confidence, you know what you want 10 to 30 years from now? 
I don't know about you, but my personal wants and needs have changed a lot over the last three decades. And I'm willing to bet that they'll drastically change again over the next, you know, three decades. And I may decide to pick up some expensive sport or, you know, I might have a family member to take care of or something else that I can't plan for. And so how does that fit into an FI plan? Right. That's, that, that's the question I'm asking myself when I'm distinguishing FI from financial freedom. So I'm going to riff this quote from Position on Fire, but he was distinguishing between the two. And he he defined financial freedom as a place that allows you to self to be self-insured against the cost of unexpected expenses and lifestyle upgrades. And so for me, the way I took that is I was like, I want I chose a number that would allow me to leave a legacy for my family. It will allow my family to continue to to live well and give well into perpetuity. And I wanted to make my world so big that anyone in it could have anything that they desired. And most of all, the reason I chose 10 million is it's a point where money becomes no object for me. And it has a really cool sound to it. Yeah, and everyone else has a million dollar goal. So when I tell them I got 10 million. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not like a super scientific, like 9.6 million. It's just a really nice, smooth 10, 10 million. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Dom, and just dropping all of these tidbits of information and all this awesome income growth knowledge. So if people want to connect, learn more about your story, where's the best place they can contact you? I think the best place is on the blog at genyfinanceguide.com. You can also reach me at my email and that's dom, D-O-M, at genyfinanceguide.com. I'm not that active on social media. I do have social media channels out there, but the blog or, or my email are the best places to reach me. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely link to both of those in the show notes. And a question I love to ask all of our guests is, what is your number one tip to accelerate our listeners' path to financial freedom? Focusing on a high income and a high savings rate is the fastest path to financial independence and eventually financial freedom if that's where your goals take you. Awesome. And that definitely reflects in the story we just heard today. So thank you for that. And something that I can't leave without asking you is the wild card question. And this is not premeditated. Dom, you know, I didn't send you this question in advance. I don't even know this question in advance. I'm making it up on the spot. <laughs> so I hope you're ready for this. All right. I'm, I'm a little nervous, but go for it. <laughs> All right. I think it's going to be an easy one for you. So we talked about you working at the pizza place. This is kind of where you had your revelation. What is your favorite kind of pizza? Oh, that's actually an easy one. All right. So my favorite kind of pizza and my wife and I, we, we actually just started doing these date nights on Fridays. Just super easy, super casual. We go to the local pizza joint and we get a pepperoni, pineapple, and jalapeno pizza. And that's my favorite wow. pizza. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay, that is quite a pizza. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard of that before. It's spicy and sweet at the same time. It's just, oh, it's so good. And I was a big hater of pineapple pizza. Like, I'm not a big fan of Hawaiian style pizza. But if you like kind of spicy, this, this just like is the perfect synergy on, on a pepperoni and jalapeno pizza by adding that pineapple. <laughs> I love how you're talking about pizza in like an optimized, strategic way right now. <laughs> it's perfect for your taste buds. I mean, if there's if there's anything that can get you close to an anami flavor, it's definitely that combination. Awesome, Dom. Well, thank you for sharing yet another awesome actionable tip. So if you are hungry, go try that pizza, pepperoni, pineapple, jalapeno. That is quite the combination. So I just want to thank you again so much for coming on today, Dom, and sharing all these actionable tips. It was a pleasure and I appreciate you taking the time to let me share my story with your listeners and I, I hope they got a lot out of it and I hope they will be shifting their focus to increasing their income and working towards a high savings rate so they can reach financial independence. 
What a story, Justin. I mean, this guy grew up on welfare. His parents were drug addicts. And he comes out making 450k a year combined with his wife, just absolutely crushing it. I mean, by any statistic, like he said, this guy should be in jail. Yeah, and I mean, right away, you know, he latched on to somebody who could kind of be a mentor for him at that pizza place. And what that shows about a kid at that age, especially with the background he's coming from, to realize like, hey, this is someone who can help me and these are skills that I can start picking up. You know, that's just very telling of where his life was going to go. Yeah, I mean, that guy really knew his way around the dough. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry if that joke was too cheesy for you. And Justin, this kind of goes back to last week's episode with Grant about just building your skills up. And Dom was not afraid to just go try a new venture, go learn something else, make himself so much more valuable to the people who are going to employ him. And I think now that we kind of have this framework, we see that it's a common theme, that these people just go out and do something, whether or not they have the skills, they might not have the mentor or the experience, but once they kind of even just try and get those skills, they become so much more valuable in the marketplace. Yeah, there's definitely some crossovers here, but the one thing that's very different that I thought was interesting is his idea of this entrepreneur where he takes a job and works his way up the ladder and gains that autonomy so that he has essentially like it's his own business but without the risks. So this is already a, a steady, you know, succeeding business, but he's worked his way up to where he's getting stake in the company and he's getting that autonomy and he's getting paid, you know, his real value, but it's not a job that he has to worry about the company failing as much as it would if he had started up himself. Yeah, that's actually something really interesting because that was an idea of mine for a while, but to get to that level, like you have to put in work for five, eight years to like get to that level of autonomy, typically. Unless you go to some like startup in Silicon Valley, but like if I wanted to get to that in a corporate job that I started next week, there's no way in hell that they just let me do whatever I want and kind of build my own job. But Dom was willing to kind of put in those years and climb his way up the ranks so that now he does wear this entrepreneur hat where he can do whatever he wants at work and enjoy it. It was culture the way he did it because it wasn't like, you know, he just said, well, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to work hard and things are going to take care of themselves. You know, he had this idea of like, I'm going to come out with a plan of how I get promoted. I'm going to take that to my boss. I'm going to have them sign off on it. And then I'm going to track it tangibly over the next year and come to them when it's time to give me my feedback and say, hey, I met all the things that you said I needed to meet to get promoted. And sure enough, he got promoted. Like he had a tangible plan that he got by off on and that he tracked. And so Justin. Whoa. Is that the call to action? I think it is, Justin. Take it away. Yeah, so for me, this week's call to action is definitely looking at that path to earning your raise. So sit down with your boss with a clear plan on what it takes to get promoted or get a raise and try to make sure that it's got some things in there you can actually track and then stay on top of that over the next year. Make sure you meet or exceed those goals and present them to your boss and get that raise. Definitely an awesome tip, Justin. And yeah, don't be nervous about it. Like you said, you're earning your raise. It's not like you're just demanding, I need 20000 extra dollars this year. Give your boss a reason to give you the raise. And so that wraps up today's show. But if you want some more detail on Dom's story and just all the things we talked about today, you can visit the show notes at thefyshow.com slash Gen Y. And don't forget to join one of the most inclusive and awesome Facebook groups that we've been telling you to join every single week at thefyshow.com slash community. And if you're liking this podcast, please leave a rating, review, tell your friends, and subscribe. It means a lot to us. Thanks for listening. See you on next week's episode of The Fi Show.